Amen. Good morning, church. Good to see you. Yep, the kids already know what to do. So yeah, the kids can, if you have your kids in kids ministry, have them send them on over there. They're going to go and have some fun learning about Jesus this morning. Uh, my name's Simon. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you are here this morning with us to worship with us in song, to worship with us as we read through God's Word and study God's Word. And um, we've been kind of just running through different books of the Bible, and I'm always excited when we start a new book. And that's where we are today. Um, as I was thinking about this particular book, something that kind of came up over and over again as I was studying and thinking about it, and the question is this, how do we know what we know? How do we know that the things that we know are the things that we know, the things are right that we know? Like, how do we know these things to be true? We have to start wondering, like, man, in this day and age, everyone's questioning everybody, aren't they? And it seems like no one can know anything, no one knows what's going on. And so we have to kind of ask, how, how do we know these things? How do I know that when I go to a light switch and I flick it on, lights will come on? How do I know that it won't burn down the building? How do I know when I go and get water from the faucet that it's not poisonous, that it's actually going to be good for me? How do I know that the earth is round? And you're like, ha ha. We don't. We can have a conversation later. If you still think it's flat, it's cool. We can have that conversation. And maybe you've even wondered, like, man, I don't know how we know at times. And I would say this. The reason we know what we know is because of experiences. Experience has shown us that we can test, we can verify, we can see, taste, feel, sense, experience. We see these things happen. We go, that's how I know that this thing is real. So we know if I was to step off of this, what would happen? Would I, would I float and just keep walking? No, gravity would pull me down. We know that because we experience gravity all the time. And so the things that we know are through experiences. And that's how the scientific model works, that they can test and verify and repeat different things. That's how we know these things. And yet maybe you have asked in your life, or you know someone who's asked, how can we know that this Jesus thing that we talk about is true? How, how do we know that he is who he said he was? How do we know that... The book that we keep studying from is real. How do we know this is what it says? How do we know how we have salvation? And that's what we're talking about. So for the next 12 weeks, we're going to step into the book of 1 John all the way up to Easter. So if you're wondering when we finish, when we're at Easter, we're done. That's how that's going to play out. And we're going to walk through it. But one of the things that I love to do when we're in a new book is I like to talk about the background. I like to talk about the context of what's happening. Because if we don't understand the context of what's going on in this time, in this age, it makes the book a little hard to understand. And what we can do just by default is we can take our context and try to shove that into where they were. And so we want to avoid that. So what I want to do is I just want to talk about some of the things that were going on and what 1 John is. So 1 John is a series of letters. We have 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. We're going to only look at 1 John, but it's a series of letters from the Apostle John. If you have read your Bible or heard the stories, uh, this is uh, the Apostle that they say that Jesus loved. It's the one that when Jesus was being crucified, he looked down at him and said, take care of my mom, which would be Mary. We know that uh, he was the one that was one of the close-knit friends of Jesus, spent a lot of time with Jesus. He um, 
this time frame of when it was written was between 85 and 95 AD. Now you're like, that's great. Those are numbers. I don't care about those numbers. But if you know what's going on during that time, those numbers become really important. So we know that around 70 AD is when the temple was destroyed. We know that Rome came in and started to ransack the area, the the city of Jerusalem, and that was taking place, and part of that was the destruction of the temple. And so the way that worship took place was ending. It was done. There was mass persecution going on during that time. At this point, uh, Peter would have been hung on a cross and he would have died. The apostle Paul would have been beheaded at this point. And so what happens is the church is scattering all over. And where they end up is where we would call, it was for this letter, is modern-day Turkey. That's really where that's at. More specifically, in the town of Ephesus. And so if you're like, where is Ephesus? It's kind of the, the western, southern part of Turkey on the water. And you kind of wonder what kind of area was Ephesus, and we could do a whole conversation on this, but it was a major thoroughfare. It was a port town. They had a lot of people coming and going. There's a lot of trades, money going through. With that was multiple cultures taking place during that time. So when you have multiple cultures, you're going to have multiple belief systems, multiple religions taking place, and you've got all these Christians that are scattered, and that's where they are during this time. And so with them having the church in these homes all over, there's going to be different understandings and beliefs of how the world works. And that's kind of where we find ourselves today. Because we see over and over again, as, as, as we always see, the threat of men that want to be in power and authority and twisting and changing the gospel will always rise its head. We see it over and over again in scripture. And what we also see is Satan is always trying to sow lies about God. He always wants to confuse, twist, manipulate the word of God to cause his children to stumble and to doubt. Now, what we see is that there is a kind of teaching being done here. We actually know the name of it. It's called Gnosticism or Gnostic teachings. It's a false teaching. And at the core, it's a danger to all believers everywhere who follow and love Jesus. And and John understands this. See, John is... Uh, older in age at this point. We don't know if he's the last apostle standing, but we know that it's thinned the ranks quite a bit. And he's well advanced in his years, and as he's looking at these home churches, as he's visiting them, as he's encouraging them, he's loving them, he's making sure they understand sound, sound doctrine, he sees this, this false teaching coming in, and he wants to correct it. He wants to help them understand what the gospel really says and what's really going on. See, Gnostics would say that uh, a number of different beliefs and and things that are contrary to the gospel, one is that um, salvation is based on some external knowledge that only some can get. Isn't that always the way, like, well, we have figured it out, and if you listen to us, and you're under our teaching, and you let us train you, maybe you'll get there someday too, but just hang in there, and we'll walk with you through it. That's one of the things that they would say, there's this external knowledge that hasn't been revealed that we have figured out. The other thing that becomes really uh, important to why we would reject this is they say that all matter, all material things are evil and wicked. We'll, we'll get to why that's problematic for the Christian in a little bit in this sermon. The other thing is that um, only spiritual things are good. Only the spirit is good. 
They would also say that um, redemption is affirming the divine light already in the human soul and not through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ's death on the cross for spiritual rebirth. You're like, well, I don't, like, I don't, what do you mean? We've heard this. There's this spark of goodness in every human being. And if you just believe in yourself and you follow that spark of hope, you'll be good, you'll be righteous, and you'll be right with God. That's, that's really what it's saying. And that's the Gnostic belief system as they're moving forward, as they're doing that. And what we'll see is that although this is called a letter, it's actually more like a poetic sermon as it's written. And it can feel like at times that, that John is kind of jumping all over the place. You're like, he's talking about this, and he's talking about this, and he's back to talking about this, now he's talking about this other thing. And it can feel like he's very um, uneducated in what he's doing, but what he's doing is called, it's a circular style of writing. And so we're used to a linear style that things kind of follow in order and we can track along the way. But what John wants to do is he wants to circle these ideas and he wants to look at them from all these different angles. And so he's going to keep coming back to three ones that we're going to see. It's going to be life, love, and truth. And as he circles that, it's kind of like if you've ever, you know... When I got Annette her first diamond, it was too small to see from different angles because it was just one angle. But if you've got a larger diamond and you look at it from different angles, it actually refracts light differently and you can see the beauty from all the different angles. And that's what he's doing. He's showing the beauty of who God is and what he's done and what life and love and truth looks like for the believer. It's a way to amplify the big idea. And that's what John wants to do. So as we were developing this series and um, I love what, what Pastor Bill did. The design that he did was fantastic because it really kind of captures what we're doing. We decided to call it We Know. And the reason why we wanted to call it We Know is because it's a phrase that John's going to use over and over again. As a matter of fact, he uses that phrase eight different times in the five chapters that we're going to study. And he really wants these believers to know that you can know this to be true. You can rest in that. In a world that there is much doubt and confusion, you can have sound understanding that this is actually true and you don't have to doubt where you are. It also shows that there's three basics of Christian life. It's kind of the call back to basics for all the individuals there. This idea of what True doctrine, obedient living, and fervent devotion. And he's going to use these two pictures that we're going to see over and over again. One is that God is light, and the other that God is love. And this book will start to show us on a practical side of what walking in the light looks like, what practicing God's truth looks like, what it means to live in God's love, and then kind of the thing that I think that we forget sometimes is we get to share in God's victory as we end out the letter. And that's where we're going. So that's what we want to do. And um, I figured let's just, let's just gently wade into the passage this week, right? We're only going to take on four verses. You're like, man, that's not a lot for you. I know. Usually we're like, oh, okay, 26 verses. Let's get after it. We're just going to do four today. So we're just going to kind of gently get into the waters and see what John does because he really does set this up as an introduction to where he's going. And like every good writer, he's going to kind of lay the groundwork for what's most important in where he's going. 
If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible, please just follow along up on the screen or grab your device or a Bible in front of you in the seat back. We would love for you to follow with us. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's go ahead and pray as we jump in. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this letter. I thank you for John and his love for the church, his love for truth, his love for understanding who you are, that you do care about people and how they view you and what biblical truth looks like and how that does shape who we are and how we live our lives. Lord, I ask that we enter into this book that would be a book that really brings us the ability to ask hard questions about where we are in life and, and what's going on in our life, but it also allows us to have the assurance that we know the truth of the gospel, who you are, what you've done on the cross, and how that affects who we are, how that affects who we are with you, and how that affects who we are with others. Lord, I ask that if there are things that I have written or thought about saying that are not from you, just please strike those from my notes in my mind. And if there's things that need to be communicated today to the men and women that are here, that you would give me the boldness to trust you and to step out in faith and say those things, knowing that you have a message for someone who's here this morning. We love you. We pray all these things in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. <clears throat> so as John starts, he wants to go all the way back to the beginning. So the question is, the beginning of what? Well, the beginning of everything. And if you know some of John's other writings, you know that he has a tendency to go back when he talks about this. So I want to go ahead and just look at how he even starts uh, the book of John, not 1 John, just John, the gospel of John, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. He says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When we start talking about this, if, if you don't know what John's talking about, if you look at the word word, it's actually a capital W. It's actually, uh, it's the name of someone. It's the idea that the word is Jesus, that he is the living word of God, God incarnate, come to communicate the truths of God to the people that were far from him because of sin. And so he's saying, this is who the word is, that he has always been, that he has always existed, that everything that was created, he created, right? This is who Jesus, he wasn't an afterthought. He wasn't a like, oh, the world's spinning. Hey, I should make another, another deity of myself. No, he has always been. He has always existed. He was there when time was created. Jesus was speaking that into existence. That Jesus is this life. 
And this life is a light to men. And you'll see, we'll talk about contrast all the time. Light and darkness, that light is God's truth, that light is God's righteousness. And that he brought that, and there is light to men and women, that there is hope for men and women, there is truth communicated to them. And it's saying that this light is more powerful than the darkness, the darkness of sin, the brokenness of the world, the enemy and his effects and his demons that would want to destroy us, that this light, Jesus, is more powerful than that. And will never be overcome by it. And John is going to kind of break down in 1 John his intro in this way to help us understand why he can even say the things he's about to say. And we could probably spend all day on verse 1, but I'm not, but we are going to jump into it. And there's four things that we see in verse 1. We've heard, that we've seen, that we've looked upon, and that we've touched with our hands. Those are going to be the ideas that he's going to communicate in just this first verse. This idea that we have heard. As Jewish men and women were growing up, they would have heard of the Messiah. They would have heard of the Christ, the one that was going to restore man and woman back with God. And they would wait for that, and they were expecting that, especially in the 400 years where the prophets start speaking. Even the prophets, when they were communicating, were always communicating about this man that would come that would save the people from their sins, from their iniquities, as it would say in the Bible. And so they would think about that and they would wait. And so they would hear the stories of. And what we see is that John is saying, not only have we heard the stories, we actually heard him speak. He talked to us. He communicated to us. He actually sat there in front of us and talked with us. We would see him face to face the way that you and I would communicate when I greet you outside, when you walk in. And he's saying, we would see him, he would speak, we could ask him questions. Now, he would usually answer in a question, but he was always talking to us and communicating to us all the time. It wasn't some we read about in some ancient text. No, this was live, in person, hearing the voice of God. He was not a vision. He was not a dream. It was not a third person who was removed that told us. He said he spoke with power and authority confronting people with the truth of God, the words that he would use to call them back to himself. So we heard him. Then it said, which we have seen with our eyes. Like, like we saw him in person. He wasn't a vision. He wasn't some rendition of a picture where he had flowing blonde hair and he looked like he was from California. We saw him Every day for three years, when we would walk, we would just look at him, walk with us. When we would go to sleep, we would see him before we went to bed. When we'd wake up, we'd see him most of the times if he hadn't snuck off to go pray. Like, they were always seeing Jesus all the time, wherever he went, and they saw him. They had that idea of what it looks like. I mean, think about this. They're like saying, he's saying this, we are eyewitnesses to this man. Well, we know that that's important because that's how we do our legal system, right? Isn't that how we do it? Do we have an eyewitness? Has someone seen this happen? Like right now, we have videos of everything. Why do we want videos of everything? I want to see that it happened. I want to make sure you didn't make something up, that it wasn't this, you know, you're, you're spinning it for your own thing. And so even we understand this. 
The ability for him to claim Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the one that would bring back relationship, saying, we saw it. We are eyewitnesses. We're not making these things up. Now, the next section would say that we looked upon. You're like, well, okay, that seems redundant. Yeah, we saw him. We get it. You looked upon him. Yeah, we get it. That's not what's being said here. And the, the word has actually got a lot more depth to it than you would realize. It's different. It means to gaze upon, to gaze and admire. It says that we gazed upon Jesus as he healed people, as he walked on water, as he brought men and even children back to life. We saw him die. We saw him come back to life three days later. After 40 days, we saw him ascend to be with the Father, to rule with him at the right hand. And as we watched him, we were amazed. And we didn't even have the words to articulate what we were watching before our eyes because there was no category for it. Like, when they watched him, they were captured by him. Think of it this way. We... We go to movies. Well, we used to go to movies. Now we just sit in our house and we watch movies. We used to go to movies and we'd pay a lot of money and we were captivated by it. And so for anywhere from an hour and a half to three hours, you were captivated and intently gazing upon and watching every detail of the movie to watch the story unfold. See, that's what they're saying. It wasn't wasn't three hours. We were captivated for three years as he walked among us, and we were amazed and astonished and captured by his glory as we watched him. That's what he's saying. And then I love what he says next is that we touched him with our hands. Again, to, and, and really what's happening here is John's already starting to refute the Gnostic teaching, right? He's already kind of pressing into it. Like, it's not some spirit or ghost or phantasm or hallucination, but we touched him. And so John would have probably thought when I touched him, like, remember at the Last Supper, it says that John leaned back up against Jesus, that he touched him, that he was leaning up against him, that there was physical body contact happening. I'm sure as Peter was thinking through this idea of touching him, how did, Peter's like, remember when I was walking on water and Jesus is there and he calls me out and I'm like, yeah, and he, and he looks away and he starts to sink. What does Peter say? Jesus saved me. And what does Jesus do? He reaches out and grabs his hand and pulls him up. There is physical contact. I would imagine Thomas would have kind of felt very similar in this idea, right? When he says, well, I don't believe that Jesus is alive. I watched him die. We watched him get buried. He says, until I put my hands in the holes in his hands and feel the gash in his side, I won't believe. And Jesus shows up. And he's like, Thomas, touch my hands. Feel my side. That they, he was real. He existed. It's, it's rejecting this Gnostic teaching. It's removing it. It's saying we've experienced these things, and, and it's, it's, that's not how it was. Like, if, I mean, it, it's problematic to go, well, if all matter and material things are evil, then that means that Jesus was a human being, which means Jesus was evil. And if Jesus was evil, he couldn't have lived the perfect life for God to be our sacrifice. And if he couldn't have been our sacrifice, we wouldn't even have salvation. Do you understand how important it was that Jesus was fully man and fully God, walked among us, met God's perfect criteria for holiness, and then gave his life as a substitution for us, for those that have called the name of him? 
See, as, as John kind of moves into this defense of the false teaching, he's really saying that we can know this, and here's why. Because we have heard him, we have seen him, we have watched what he did, and we touched him. We are complete eyewitnesses to everything that has gone on in the life of this man. And you can believe me as he's talking to these people, as he's late in his age, like, you need to understand that this is true. These are not made up stories. And as he proceeds to tell them that the word of life, that Jesus was made manifest. And this is where I think it just starts melting your mind a little bit. Like, so Jesus has existed always. He created all things. He creates time. So he has no beginning. Yet he has a beginning as he becomes a man into humanity. But yet he has no beginning. But yet he came into this one time that we just celebrated as Christmas is that he came down to earth as a man incarnate. And this is what they're talking about, this manifestation of God coming to be among us as a human being. He knows us. He understands us. He experiences all the things that we've experienced, yet did not sin. And, and John's saying, how can we know this? Because I've seen it. And because I've experienced it firsthand. And he's saying, I want you to know, all, all of us that are left want you to know the very thing that you have, the identity that you have in Christ, that you have been saved, that you are a child of God, that you are secure and that you are his. But he's saying that there's a purpose as to why he's doing this. <clears throat> and verse three would even say, that which we have seen and heard be proclaimed to you also, so that, so there's the reason why, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, the fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Christ Jesus. Now, it uses this word fellowship that we need to kind of start understanding what's going on. And fellowship's a weird word. We think of hobbits and, and dwarves and elves and, and people with sticks and like, oh, that's the fellowship of the rings. And you're like, well, that's, that's goofy, but the reality is actually it's, it's the right word. Because what happened was these individuals spent a number of time together in the story and they became connected. They laughed together. They cried together. They lost together. That they, were, they knew each other, where they were. They cared for each other. They were willing to lay down their lives for each other. And there was intimate relationship within that story that we read. Well, if you look at the way the word fellowship is used in, in this passage, it would say this, fellowship is the act of sharing in the activities or privileges of an intimate association or group, especially used of marriage and churches. So that's that word, that's how that's defined, that's how that's used in this particular section. That it's, it's not a casual, hey, I know you, you, you go to this place. Or, no, there's, there's intimacy involved in that relationship. So when it's talking about fellowship, that this fellowship is based in a couple different areas. It's based with our relationship, our fellowship with Jesus, which allows us fellowship with the Father, which then allows us to have fellowship with each other. And so the, John just kind of writes it in the reverse order. He says, fellowship with us and each other, and then with God the Father and the Son. Like, that's what he's doing there. And so here's what's happening in Ephesus. There, this false teaching 
these lies, this Gnostic teachings that were, that were coming out, that we're still, by the way, we still are dealing with these Gnostic teachings today. Maybe you've heard of the book of Thomas, the book of Judas, like they've come out. We reject those. Those are Gnostic teachings. They didn't, they, they came hundreds of years after this and they're like, oh, but we have these. But yeah, but they're not authenticated. They're not real. They, they, they reject the gospel. It's saying that this is harmful to what God has made the church to be. Now, if you've been here for the last three months, we've been in Acts, we've watched the, the birth of the church and how the church functioned and how they interacted with each other, that they loved each other, they cared for each other, they prayed for each other, they gave to each other, they walked with each other through the week. Day after day, they would meet and they would talk about Jesus and how he saved them. This is trying to erode the very foundation of what God created with the church in the book of Acts. And it's under threat. It's under attack. Having all things in common is legitimately under attack. And here's the reason why. Because the message was about the individual, not the collected group of Christians. And so it was focused on the one getting glory, not the group bringing glory to God. And that was the issue. See, this, this fellowship is rooted in connection to the Father and Son because he is the source of that connection. We see that God is perfectly in fellowship within himself. We call that the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That he didn't, he wasn't bored and made humanity. That's just, just so you know, like that. He wasn't like, oh, if only I had people that I could be around. If only people liked me. Like that's not why God created humanity. But he was in perfect community within himself. And if we are made in the image of God, we were also made to be in that kind of community that we are supposed to interact in a way that reflects God in all ways, in all shapes and sizes. <clears throat> we see that John actually prayed for this. I mean, sorry, Jesus prayed for this in John 17, 11. We see that as he is preparing to go to the cross, he's praying to God, he is kind of just pouring out his heart, and he shifts his focus on what he's about to do, and he shifts his focus to us. To believers that would then place their faith in them, that ultimately would call themselves Christians. And in 17, verse 11, it says this, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, saying, I'm going to ascend to you. I'm going to be with you. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So there is an expectation that Jesus knows that his followers, that these Christians, that the church would have a connectedness the same way we see in the Trinity, the same way that Jesus and God have a relationship. He wants that, we get to have that with him, but he wants that for ourselves as well. So we should all be in that kind of way that we have that fellowship, that intimacy that we're talking about. Someone say, well, how do we do that? Like, I don't, like, where does that even come from? Well, oddly enough, he tells us in chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, it would say this, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So how do we live in this fellowship? How do we have the, all these things in common? Jesus has told us. He's saying, hey, listen, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. He's like, I'm the, I'm the main shoot. Everything comes from me. 
See, like if you cut off a branch, the vine doesn't die. The branch dies. We're the branch. We're connected to the vine. Saying, if you want to bear fruit, if you want to uh, live in this way, you need to abide in me. You need to be connected to me. So if we're not connected to Christ, we're not going to be able to live in this way. We don't have the ability in and of ourselves. We must receive a new heart that has been given to us by Christ that the Holy Spirit resides in us and allows us to live in this way. Without that, we can't. So we see that we need Christ to be connected to the Father, and we need Christ so we can be connected to each other. Say, well, that's messy. I don't like that. Shouldn't I just be able to do my own thing? Well, you can try, but that's just bad theology. Like, we just don't see that in Scripture. There's no, like, I do my own thing. As a matter of fact, that was always punishment when something went wrong is to be removed from people. That was a bad thing. And so they would isolate them in prison and they'd kick them out of camps like that. They weren't allowed to be around people. So as we start to look at this connectedness and what it does, we see that this is a part of God's great rescue plan. That, that God is using his son to bring us back to him. Because of sin, it keeps us from God. See, he's restoring a relationship. He's restoring fellowship with him. See, the best relationship we could ever have is the one that gives life. And the relationship that was lost all the way back in the garden was the relationship that gave us life. And as soon as we were disconnected from God, we had a spiritual death and ultimately we had a physical death that came from that. And he's saying, this is what we're doing. We're, we're restoring humanity. Sin has removed you from God. He can't allow sin to be in his presence without judging it. He has to judge it. Because we're at war with God. But there's good news because in Romans 5, 1 and 2, it tells us this. <clears throat> Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Though through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and now we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So think about this. As, as we were in sin and rejected God, we were enemies of God. That there was tension, there was battle between us, that we were rejecting him to do what we wanted to do. And what happened is, is that uh, in Romans, Paul's gonna use the term that we have peace with God now, that that war has ended, there is peace now, that we are in completeness, in wholeness with God, the way we were designed back in the garden, walking with him in the cool of the day, in relationship, in fellowship, with intimacy. It's not some casual bypass. No, this is, we are connected, we are one, we are whole. It's a free gift that God offers anyone who would call on the name of Jesus for salvation. It says we're justified, we're made just because of what Jesus did if we've placed our hope for salvation in the work of the cross and what he's done. Here's the sad part. The sad part is over the years, I, I watch people come and go to church and I didn't grow up in a church so I didn't have a, a church background which is probably why I got in trouble all the time. But as I watch people, I saw people over and over again that their relationship was really, it wasn't really about a relationship with God. It was really about what they could get from God. 
See, John in this letter is going to start calling out what it means to truly love and worship Jesus. And he's going to start pressing against the men and the women and what they believe because it's important what we believe about who Jesus is and what he did. And what I mean by they were trying to get something from God is this. Um, I talk to people all the time and it's just like, I don't think prayer works because God doesn't answer my prayers. You ever heard that statement? I've heard that statement. And so what they're like, I want God to answer my prayers. I want God to do what I want him to do. I want to I wanna have a good life. I want to be uh, comfortable. I want to have money. I want to have a good job. I want to get a good wife. I want to have good kids. I want to have a nice car. I want to be able to retire when I want to retire. I want, I want, I want, I want. I want fire insurance because when I was a kid, my parents said to me, hey, do you want to go burn in hell for eternity or would you rather be with mommy and daddy in heaven? I'm like, oh, heaven, please. Burning sounds bad. Like if, if, if your sole purpose is like, I just want fire insurance. I want to get out of not going through this pain and suffering. You've missed the point. You've missed it completely. And what we see in the churches over and over again, that there's this consumerism, transactional kind of working with God. And it's like a transaction. So if you've ever done business meetings or been in businesses, um, business lunches are interesting. You're not there for the food, right? You're there because something is going to be a transaction that's going to benefit you in some way, shape, or form. Either someone is going to give you money because you can offer them something, or they're going to offer you something that's going to allow you to make money. That's why you have business lunches. You eat food, you drink drink, but you don't care about that. You're really concerned about what you can get. Now, Going back to our original definition of what fellowship looks like, it said that marriage was a part of that, that there is, that, that word fellowship is used with marriage. Now, if we kind of play with that idea a little bit, it would be weird if the only time my wife and I ate together is when I wanted something. I need to borrow the car, I need some money for this, I need to do that, hey, like, you know, you look cute tonight. Like, they're, they're, uh, if that's the only reason that we would ever have food It'd be weird. It would be this like, I'm just trying to get stuff from you. I don't necessarily care about you that much. I just care about what I can get. And you would probably say, is there really a lot of love there? Is there really a lot of affection there? Is there really any kind of intimacy in that relationship? And let's be honest, do we really think that that marriage would last? We know the answer is no. There's no way. That would not be a healthy relationship. See, I love my wife, but I like my wife too. I actually enjoy the company of my wife. And so because we're, you know, we have kids, we walk a lot. We have a lot of walking dates. We enjoy spending time together. We go out to be around each other. And so when we walk, we talk about our days. We talk about what we're doing. We laugh. We take the dog for a walk. We, we, we share where we're struggling. Um, my wife is great because um, when I think I haven't done enough studying, she's like, well, what'd you learn about today? And I start sharing. She's there to bounce ideas and to help me see things differently that I may have missed when I'm kind of preparing for my sermons. And I just like to be around her. She's super fun. She's way nicer than me. 
Like, you guys hiring me kind of scored by getting her. I, I say that all the time. You're like, that's so cute. I'm like, but I kind of mean it. Like, she is way, like, we were out this weekend. We, had some, we have some friends in town. And she kept being nice to all these strangers. I'm like, why are you so nice? You're, you serve everybody. I'm like, I want to be like you when I grow up. <laughs> because I just like her. I, I, I enjoy my wife. And so when we get together for meals, you know what we do? We just enjoy being in relationship. We enjoy just being in the presence of each other. Now, we don't do it perfect all the time, okay? Like, I'm not some super guy. Like, we still bicker, we still have arguments, and we still do those things. We're still humans. But I genuinely love being around my wife. See, the relationship that we have with God is like that as well. If you, if you, if you read the Bible, I remember when I was a kid, I was a little kid, and I was reading the Bible, and um, I remember it was like, you know, and he knew her, that, that, that term that's used in the Bible when it's used to talk about sex. And I'm like, oh, they said talking about sex. And we say things like, do you know her in the biblical sense? And it's just, we're just stupid teenagers, just dumb teenagers. And we would talk like that. But think about this. Think about what's being communicated that there is a depth and level of intimacy that exists between those two people. To where it doesn't say they, you know, they made love, it says that they knew each other. This is the kind of relationship that we can have with God, that there's such intimacy that we know God. We understand God the same way that my wife knows how I think. She knows why I say what I say. She knows how I'm going to respond is because there is intimacy in a relationship. This is what... John is calling these men and women to to have this kind of relationship with God the Father that you would know how God thinks because you understand him so well because you spent so much time with him that you would enjoy being with God. Do you want to spend time with God just to be with God? Or do you just want his things? You know, if your idea about a relationship with God is so you can go to heaven, like I said, you've missed the point because here's the thing. Do you know why heaven is so great? Do you know why heaven is so amazing? Because Jesus is there. That's why heaven's great. And if, and I'm using my words very specifically, if Jesus wasn't there, heaven would suck. We get Jesus. That's what we get. That's the beauty of what he did on the cross, that we get God. We get to be with God. We get to be in relationship with God the way we were designed to be, the way we were supposed to be. He has corrected the problem. He has saved us. And this is, this is what John is, is getting at in verse 4, this idea of like, make my, like, it would complete my joy. Like, what, what does he mean? Like, why would that complete his joy? His joy comes from the men and women that he's been entrusted to love and encourage, knowing Jesus in the same way. Loving the Father in the same way as the apostles got to. That's what, I mean, look. It's what we're meant to be. Like, it's the joy of every pastor 
to see the men and women in the congregation love and worship Jesus with all of their heart and experience the goodness and the peace and the joy that comes from being in relationship with God the Father. And if that's not their joy, you should truly question why are they there then? John's saying, this makes me happy. This makes everything that I've gone through worthwhile. It's, it's interesting. As, as you look at some of the, 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 the stories in the past in the Bible, like we see this play out too, right? Remember when Moses was going to go into the promised land and the people were just being just punks again? And he's like, uh, God's just like, all right, I'm, I'm going to give you the land. Just, just go. I'm not going. Did you go? And what does Moses say? No. If we can't have you, we don't want the land because the land won't be worth anything. That's what I want for you. I want you to be like, if God's not in this, I don't want to be a part of anything that God's not in. And I, and I want to start asking some, like, these are the land point questions, right? This is where we land today as we wrap up. How about you? How do you view your relationship with God? Is, is your relationship with God about transactions, about getting the things that you want? Or is it about the joy of lingering with the creator of the universe who loves you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross so you could have peace with him and be brought back to him? When is the last time you spent time with God to just be alone with him. You're like, I don't, I don't know how to do that, Simon. It's as easy as going to get away. I've done it in a million different ways. I've gotten alone with God driving my car down the freeway, in the woods. I've gone on hiking trips and camping and sitting on stumps. And, when I'm, and I've said it, it's goofy and people make fun of me all the time. My favorite place to hang out with God, anyone? My wife knows. It's my hot tub that I don't have (laughs) yet. I would sit out in the hot tub for hours and just talk with God. Four plus times a week, I'd just sit out in the night and I would talk with God. And I would ask questions. And I would pour out my frustrations and my brokenness. And I would confess my sins. And I would worship him as I looked at the night sky. When is the last time you have made time to get? Maybe this week, you got to make some time to get out with God, to be in fellowship with God. Or maybe you need to start asking some questions and confess. Am I just using God? And if you are, confess that to him. Repent of that. And know that he will forgive you and welcome you in with open arms. Let's pray. Jesus, I just know as I was working through this week that I was just feeling some of that in my own life. Like, am I just coming to you all the time with, the, with my wants and my desires and the things that I think I need? Or am I truly enjoying you? And so the areas, Lord, where I try to use you to get the things I want, I confess those and ask that you would forgive me. I ask that as the men and women are here today, that maybe they're thinking through their relationship with you and what it really looks like, I ask that you would bring clarity to where they are in their walk with you, that you would open their eyes to the truth of how they view you, and if it is a transactional relationship, that they would reject that. 
they would repent and they would turn to you. And Lord, for my brothers and sisters who do love you, I ask that you would give them some time this week just to spend time with you, understanding the great fellowship that we have, that we know that we have fellowship because of what your son is on the cross. We love you. We pray these things in your glorious and amazing name. Amen.